You just got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. Hey, sports fans, welcome to Sports Nerds. Here are your hosts, Dr. Samuel J. and Dr. Brian Schrader. Brian Schrader, my sports nerds compadre, we are back on the show. It's a wonderful week, not just because your, uh, your Boston Red Sox are playing in the World Series, but because uh, according to multiple uh, uh, resources, sources, you and I have the number one and number two teams in the Big Ten. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, buddy. Are you excited about that? Are you excited? Oh, I'm, or are, I'm, are we talking? I'm excited. What, a, what would no, you... No, I mean... What, I'd... Sorry, what? We, well, no, we had talked about a Big Ten championship game if it were to come to Iowa, Michigan, but uh, you're busy. Yeah, I'll be busy, which is a so, bummer because I would go. That'd be, yeah, that would be, be fun. fun. That'd be that'd be so much fun. No, I mean both teams. Both teams are are good this year, and I mean have, have some. You know, I, I you've said it a bunch of times, but Iowa looked really good in that in that Wisconsin game and could be undefeated, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this week only has that that close loss to uh, to Notre Dame, but man, not to talk about my team, but they had no issue with Wisconsin and didn't seem to have much trouble with Michigan state. I mean, they could have put more points on the board blocked blocked field goal in the first half, but considering that game was delayed by like an hour and a half, but 21 seven, I mean, that's, it's not bad. And then, and then yeah. Ohio state loses things are, things are coming up millhouse for, for our teams in the big 10. It's exciting. Things College are football is great. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I love it. It's, it's, you know, uh, exploitation of free labor. It's fantastic. Uh, I was, I walked right into that one. <laughs> well, we are critical scholars. That's what we have to do. Hey, uh, I know that, you know, you and I got started a little late today, so we'll jump right into, to our rundown folks. If you're not following us, following us on Facebook, uh, find us out there. We are at facebook.com slash sports nerds. Uh, we are on Instagram sports nerds, and we are on, uh, Twitter underscore sports nerds brian today after the show after we get things edited up i think i'm going to try to finalize our website so brian and i officially have a website you can see it now it's it's not pretty at the moment it's a little raw but you can go to we are sports nerds.com and uh eventually i think i'm hoping into the day it's going to be looking pretty solid we like to get our videos posted up there um i know we're on youtube but it'd be nice to kind of embed them in the website but just uh, kind of serve as a go-to resource for folks who are interested in the show so uh, stay tuned for that uh, other things brian do we have any news to announce i don't think we have any at the moment no, no, not that, that I can think of. Okay. All right. Well, let's jump right into it, buddy. Uh, first story, I wanted to get your perspective as a Raiders fan. Um, John Gruden is simply dismantling the Oakland Raiders. And we read an article this morning from Bleacher Report that basically summarized a lot of the players uh, taking issue with this. Are we to the point now uh, where John Gruden has lost the locker room? We talked a couple weeks ago about affect and emotional management uh, as a coach. And so that's question number one. Question number two, is that a problem? Or is, does he know what he's doing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's reason to believe that he maybe never had the locker room in the first place. Okay, I mean, You have to remember the guy hasn't been there that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we did talk about this last week that he's – he does not have a reputation for being a player's coach. He has a, a, a reputation for being sort of a 
a hard ass, you know, something in the in the vein of a of a Bill Belichick, who mm-hmm. um, is more of a my way or the highway sort of coach. Um, and as soon as he got to Oakland, he got um, uh, he, he he got rid of their punter uh, and sent him, you know, packing, and he went eventually and signed with uh, uh, the Broncos um, because you know he was a really good punter, but he had uh, issues with getting you know penalties all the time for for taunting and weird stuff like that. Um, and I think he was just trying to send a message. We're not going to have that type of, you know, bullshit shenanigans on the team. And then what happens is he ends up getting cut from the Broncos, you know, only a quarter of the way through the season. So maybe there's a method to, to Gruden's madness. The more recent stuff that, that is perhaps more troubling for um, other players on the Raiders is that uh, they just have a bad history of, of losing their, um, their first round draft picks uh, to not being very good or to injury or to, you know, what, whatever circumstance you want to talk about. And the most, the most recent ones are obviously uh, the Raiders traded Khalil Mack who wanted a, 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 to sign a long-term deal and wanted more money than the Raiders were, were willing to, to pay them to pay him. So they end up trading him to um, the, the Chicago bears. And then just this week they got rid of Amara Cooper, who was another first round draft pick uh, to um, the Dallas Cowboys. And the article that you mentioned points out that uh, there, there's some, you know, rumblings inside of the Raiders locker room that uh, Gruden either misled the players about whether or not they were going to get rid of people or get rid of Amari Cooper um, or out and out told them that it wasn't going to happen. And then they come back from their bye week and uh, Amari Cooper Amari Cooper has been traded. Um, so, so, I mean, you can understand from the perspective of other players on that team that getting rid of you know, two number two first round draft picks in Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper is unsettling, right? You don't want to play for a team that's that's not trying to win, the team that's in you know a quote unquote rebuilding um, situation. But the same Bleacher Report article that that you mentioned makes the point that Gruden's got a ten year deal in Oakland, and a bunch of his compensation is uh, you know kind of ownership stake stakes in the team. So I think. It might be fair to say that um, you know he the, the writing was on the wall that they weren't you know they only won one game this year that they're they're playing the long game and that having three first round picks next year sets them up to do a lot of really creative things in the draft. I mean, when it comes to Amari Cooper, he wasn't playing that well uh, and he had a history of drops. He he wasn't probably worth the the draft pick value that the Raiders expended on him and they were in a unique situation. They're not going to make the playoffs. They're not very good this year. Um, and the Dallas Cowboys are an okay football team that were really, really, uh, shallow in the, um, in the wide receiver position. So he is in a situation to go to the Cowboys and, and, and really help them out. So I understand from the perspective of players on that team, maybe there's a lack of confidence in, um, in John Gruden, but this is just like, you see this with college coaches all the time. How much can you, can you hang the success or failure of a team on a coach in their first year, right? You have to give Gruden an opportunity to to sort of work with Reggie McKenzie, the general the general manager, and and build a team that fits his offensive and defensive schemes. And as far as Cleo Mack is concerned, I don't hang that one. I don't put that one on the Raiders at all. He didn't want to play there. Um, he got paid a absolute ton of money. He's a great player, obviously, but he got he was getting he's getting paid a ton of money, and that's a contract that will probably be hard on the bears over time. I guess my concern is, or my question is going back to our conversation a couple weeks ago, um, knowing that Gruden is not going to be able to completely clean the slate and, and create a team whole, like completely around his, his idea. Do you think that he 
is going through and evaluating uh, the, the players that he'll be able to have, uh, I guess, empathetic relationships with, uh, uh, meaningful relationships with. Uh, he'll be able to kind of, they'll be able to, to, to he'll be able, I, I suppose, to, to establish credibility and persuade those players to buy into that kind of system down the, down the road when he starts drafting players uh, to, to supplement uh, the already existing players, because uh, the reason why I asked that is, you know, we talked about Belichick and his ability to kind of take on problematic characters. And, and we kind of said it's really has everything to do with his ability to navigate emotion and, and, and energy or affect within that locker room. Um, do you think that Gruden is setting himself up with that kind of uh, locker room where he can do the same? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, with the exception of uh, why am I why am I blanking on that punter's name? Oh yeah, I can't remember it either. I know who you're talking about. He's with the, yeah, the guy with the Broncos. But I mean, I can't remember his name either. Yeah, with that dude, I keep wanting to say Mar- Marquette King. I was kept wanting to say Martellus Bennett. I knew that was wrong. Marquette King. Um, with Marquette King, I think it was the move was I'm, you know, this is a power move. I'm I'm sort of signaling to my players that I'm not going to take take shit from you. That I'm not a that I'm not a player style of manager. With the other two, I think it was strictly a business move. I think, and 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 even to blame that I'm Gruden seems silly. He's not the GM. Reggie McKenzie is. It's been his team for a long time. Um, he's the one who made those decisions. Um, so I, I'm trying to read between the lines in this article and say the reason that players are upset is not that Amari Cooper got traded, which I think is a, a smart move. He didn't live up to a first round draft pick, and the Raiders got one back for him. That seems okay in a losing effort. the 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 issue seems to be whether or not he's communicating. Um, transparently with his players what the vision for the team is. If if your players think that you're still playing for this season and you're like, yeah, yeah, we totally are, and they come back for a bye and you've cut your 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 number one receiver, it's not a question of the move itself. It's a question of how you're communicating that move. But I think you're right. I think that going forward, um, you know, the, the, a culture is going to be established. And, and with Gruden, maybe that culture is you know, do your job and I'll do mine. And, and, you know, I, I don't really need your input on personnel moves. Um, or, or maybe, maybe the flip of that is true. Maybe Gruden has been out of the game for a while and sort of misplayed his hand here and will learn to become more transparent. Yeah, I mean, As it is, I'll be honest, man, this, this to me is, this to me is, um, you know, a, a mountain out of a molehill, okay. uh, a non-issue. If, if we want to talk about an issue with the Raiders is that they have one win, you uh, know, <laughs> no, that's a really good point. I mean, we're really, that they're, that they're bad at football. Sure. <laughs> that would be the, the concern. It's definitely been a relatively boring, uh, season thus far for the NFL. And I think I've had so much trouble watching yeah. color, our pro- profile. Well, and here. I, you know, I think this goes back to, to, um, outlets, media outlets really having to find stories to, to grab attention. Um, you know, last week it was it was the Odell Beckham Jr. thing. Even even later last week or early this week, same thing. Now we have this story. So uh, I think take that all into into account, folks, when you begin consuming uh, this kind of sports media and realize that so much of it just centers on attention in ways that uh, we don't really expect from hopefully our political or or uh, cultural commentary. But anyhow, let's uh, let's move past that one. The second one, um, I was interested. And having a brief chat uh, about Zach Smith's comments yesterday. Uh, so Zach Smith was the is the fired uh, Ohio State wide receiver coach who uh, took a plea deal. Um, the details are laid out in a Deadspin article, but you can also just find it online. That plea deal, and he got into a kind of a spat with uh, Brett McMurphy, who is a writer for ESPN, I believe. But um, I. I was in, interested in this because I think uh, it might be valuable for us to to talk about the rhetorical tactic of of immediately denying 
or going on the attack when these kinds of things happen, uh, as opposed to necessarily, uh, as opposed to offering some sort of in-depth um, uh, uh, reflection or uh, contrition about what one did. And so what I'm saying here is, as opposed to Zach Smith, right, admitting that something uh, that he did something terrible. And taking responsibility for it, he immediately attacks back. He attacks Brett McMurphy, who's a very credible source. And I think we tend to see the same thing even now in our political system. And so that's why I wanted to bring up this particular topic. Uh, do we have a ty- do we have a name for that in rhetorical theory? That kind of defense, you know? Um. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't Does that know. make sense though to you? Like, as opposed to like. As opposed to apologize, I'll be honest. The whole story doesn't make yeah, any sense. Yeah. Um, here's here's a here's a weird example. Do you remember the BTK mm-hmm. killer? You have to you have to bear with okay, me. Okay, we're this. going we're going down for, we're, we're going down this path. Here we go. The B, the BTK killer was uh, a a guy who lived some somewhere in Kansas, Wichita. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, Wich, Wichita. There you go. It's closer to your neck of the woods than mine. And he was um, he was a serial killer. He worked for ADT Security and he stalked people and he killed them. And he he killed a bunch of people, like ten or twelve people or something like that. Anyways, um, uh, he got sentenced, arrested, arrested and sentenced when I was in grad school. And I found it fascinating for some reason. Uh, so I I watched a bunch of the sentencing on TV. Um, and this dude pled guilty, right? He kind of, he got caught, but he sort of turned himself in on like, half turned himself in half got caught, like made it very easy for himself to get mm-hmm. caught. Um, and then, and then pleads guilty to all of these crimes. Um, and over the course of his sentencing, they make him, they make him explain what he did. Basically he has to allocute. He has to say the crimes that yeah. he committed. And so he goes through all the crimes that he does and tells him in, in, you know, it, it's very weird to watch because he seemed almost bored with it, which is weird. Serial killers are fascinating. Not in a good way, but Agreed. fascinating. Anyways, um, at the end, they're like, the judge says something to the effect of, hey, is there anything else that you want to add or whatever? And he's like, yeah, um, the prosecutor said that they found a bunch of porno in this trailer on my property. And that that was not mine. Like that was, yeah. you know, that there's no, that was, so they planted that yeah. pornography. That was yeah. mine. And you're watching this and you're like, what the fuck are you talking yeah. about, dude? You just, you spent like, there was a lunch break. It took so long for you to explain how you murdered all these people that there was a lunch break. And then in the end, you're you're like, but that porno wasn't mine. Do you see, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, what is the function of that denial? Well, what does that get? Right. I, I mean, let me bring it, let me bring it back to to Zach Smith. He seems to be. I mean, he pled guilty, yeah. right, to a crime to get a plea deal, and then he starts a fight on Twitter about the particulars of that plea plea deal. It's a non denial denial. Yeah. Right. Nothing he's saying on Twitter is that he didn't do any of this stuff. Right. I think. Okay. So if we can think about this in terms of language, uh, even to go back to the BTK killer, because uh, you're dealing with a sociopath as opposed to um, somebody somebody who's who's suffering from like a a mental illness, right? That would do that. Obviously, mental mental illness. It's a different. It's different behavioral thing. Uh, I think it's it's framing one's understanding of what they did, either ethically unethically moral immorally and right and, and basically categorizing different things based on whether or not they're moral or immoral let me clarify the btk killer right able to maybe remove humanity or the hu- the human element of the victim so therefore is it going to view that victim from that from that um ethical humanism perspective 
but yet pornography is this thing or sex is this thing that's tied to, uh, in his mind, uh, something that's very, very human. I'm wondering if it's the same thing here. Not obviously we're talking something very different with, uh, with, with this turd, Zach Smith, but, um, not necessarily seeing what he did to his wife as a bad thing, right? Maybe characterizing or framing her as something much, much different than a pure a person or somebody lesser than him and therefore going on the attack and explaining away what he did is 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 something he's able to do without batting an eye i think that's that's like that's where language comes I mean, in right that's that that's where everything comes in uh in our brains and and um we use words to frame to include to exclude people and to justify the things that we do to them and it's not just our brains, right? It's definitely uh, the the words that we use to do so. Yeah, I mean, I, my, the, the the point of the comparison for me is that it seems like Smith is denying a particular part of a piece of reporting that this reporter reported on. Not to, that made me sound stupid. Do you understand? He's he's not denying the breadth of what this dude said. The main point of what he said. He's taking issue with like a really small technicality in an effort to claim some sort of moral high ground. It doesn't make any sense. If you were like, hey, Brian, you know, I saw you last week and, and we were sitting down having a meeting and you were, you know, really rude and dismissive and that hurt my feelings, you know, and I came back and I was like, it wasn't last week. It was four weeks ago. Like that has that has no bearing on the on the the, the, the central thesis of your claim that I was being rude. Right. But that's it's a distinction without a difference. This guy pled, pled guilty to a crime and there's a, 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 a he, he gets probation. Right. And this is this is all stemming from a domestic a domestic assault allegation, and an ESPN guy reports on this, and this guy pushes back and says, "You're wrong about the particulars of the restraining order." Well, so fucking what? Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? <laughs> you're, you're, none of this exonerates you. None of the reporting was substantively incorrect. It had like a missed detail. So the rhetorical strategy is it's deflection. If I, it, it, it's it's it, it, partly it's deflection, but it's partly. If I can deny any single part of your argument, then by extension, I should be able to deny the whole thing. But that's not true. Does that does that make sense? If you're like, fine, Zach Smith, you're right. Both you and your wife requested a restraining order afterwards, not mm-hmm. just her. That does not have anything to do with the central reporting that this guy pled guilty to a domestic violence uh, uh, allegation, right? Does that make point? The rhetorical strategy is is – I'm denying this little tiny facet of what you're saying, this one little little part of your argument in an attempt to make it seem like I'm correct on the whole. But that, but that's right. You know, the fact that that wasn't your pornography in the trailer does not make you not a serial killer. Does that does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. But I think that works. I think that that, that approach, not with the BTK killer, right? Because I think. Well, um, yeah, and that's a pretty extreme example. But in. I don't know if it even works in this case, but I know politically that works. I think I think uh, I don't know if it has to do with the contemporary moment we're in, or 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 what, or the flow of information and how we take our take in our news and information. But I think that that deflection is extremely um, effective in today's uh, media, social, political landscape, whatever you no. want to call it. I think. Yeah, I think it's easier. Like, it's much easier for, I guess. I think if we, th- if we think about this in terms of like the rhetor, the speaker, 
being able to throw out those bombs or those, I think rumor bomb is actually be a, it's, it's a good kind of a parallel to this, right? Throwing out a rumor, throwing out a deflection, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as a, you know, that, that, that people are going to cling to that and take off with that as opposed to, a, a, instead of going deep on, on the real issue. I think that that works, that circulates faster. I mean, look at this, right? Like this is an article that like it, it got attention in Deadspin. I'm not sure if it's going to get attention anywhere else, but um, you know, it it serves the purpose of shifting the conversation away from domestic abuse towards a Twitter fight, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Maybe and the rhetorical term here is is uh, that we're looking for is and I uh, synecdoche. Have you ever heard this term? Yeah, before? yeah, Rep- yeah. Rep- representation of the part for the whole. Yes. But maybe the strategy yeah. here is to be like, if I can deny this one thing, that becomes a stand-in for the entirety of the of the uh, issue or of the debate, right? Yeah, that's a good one. I think I dig maybe, that. maybe that's the the rhetorical framing that's going on here. I don't know. That was my reaction the entire time. That this conversation seems to make this guy seems to think that there's something exonerating about about his representation of the of the the plea deal that got struck. And that the ESPN reporter was misrepresenting that or glossing over it. And I think the ESPN reporter was like, no, that just doesn't exonerate you. And maybe there was, you know, a slight, not even misrepresentation, just a non-representation of this one very subtle element of, of the plea deal. Like that, that's his beef, right? His, basically, this guy, Zach Smith, is saying, you know, my wife didn't get a lifetime protection order against me. We, I also requested a protection order against her which there doesn't seem to be a reason for that but maybe they're just like fine two-way street i guess man just a, but to me i guess i'm fascinating in i'm fascinated in the environment in which uh we we now live in a world where zach smith can do that and immediately have effect like 15 years ago that dude has no outlet in order to throw a grenade into the conversation and blow it up. But now because of, in this case, social media, but I, th- I don't think it's that it's just the much larger media landscape that we live in. He can do that and it can work, which is just crazy to me. I mean, yeah. dude, it, it works with, with president Trump all the time. You know, he will, he will go to Twitter uh, when there's any kind of negative reporting about him or his administration and people recirculate it, right? They retweet it, they share it. And it has the effect of at least, in certain parts of the country or with certain um, ideological actors, uh, it does tend to, you know, reaffirm one stance. And I think that's probably what happened here with Zach Smith, that those people who already agreed with him uh, were able to kind of rally the troops, circle the wagons, and continue to defend him by saying, oh, this Brett McMurphy got it wrong, right? Or he's focusing on the wrong thing, or Zach Smith is getting an unfair shake. So it works. That's what's crazy. Well, and, and it's happening in a you know fake news era where if 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 something paints you in a negative light or if you disagree with something that that you can just sort of say this is this is fake news and there's you know a lot of people who um, due to to sort of a concerted effort to to breed distrust of the media will say well yeah you know the the media landscape is one that's not searching for the truth, but is only ever trying to um, uphold particular political motivations, right? They, it, it, it's bizarre. It, seem, it seems to me that that questions of, and we're going to talk about this more with Ronaldo in a second, that questions of 
um, uh, domestic violence or sexual assault need not be politicized. It seems like something where everybody can get on board and be like, those things are terrible. But we know that that because of, you know, the Me Too movement, and, and we saw this, you know, uh, take center stage a couple weeks ago with the um, Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings and, and, and Dr. Blasey Ford, that these have become, unfortunately, sort of political wedge issues, right? So, um, you know, kind of, Maybe it, 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 I think it's regrettable, but maybe it's an effective strategy to say, hey, look, the media is trying to misrepresent the, the outcome of a domestic violence uh, allegation to, to meet a particular political uh, outcome. I'm not sure Smith is going that far, but maybe he's just implicitly relying on that, um, on that trope, mm-hmm. right? That, that a lot of people are getting away with sort of wholesale painting the media as being um, uh, politically motivated as opposed to um, what should be their function, which is telling stories and, and giving information and, and searching for the truth and, the, and that sort of stuff. And that it, it, it just, the, the rhetorical situation is ripe for this um, particular strategy of denying the part, substituting for denying the whole, even though it's not. That's spot on, man. Good explanation. Uh, I think that's a perfect transition to our final story. We don't want to spend too much time on this. I know that you were, <laughs> it's not the best way to, to start off a Wednesday talking about this depressing ass <laughs> story, but I think we have to. I'm amazed by the fact no, that sure. so much of this conversation around Ronaldo is just not being taken up. Uh, you're not seeing it much no. in, 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 on ESPN. You're not seeing it much on Fox. But uh, to summarize things, uh, I don't think this is fake news. I think this is a realistic Me Too uh, situation. Basically, Brian, uh, summer 2009, um, Ronaldo uh, is accused of raping Catherine Mayorga in Las Vegas. A lot of the coverage that you and I are interested in are, are obviously how things are being reframed by his, uh, his media team, uh, his lawyers, his legal team. What's, what's I'm really interested in is the fact that Nike is, has distanced itself from Ronaldo over the last three weeks based on this. The the story is in uh, They have or have not? They have for the most part, right? They, they've, in ways that, that the, his soccer club, Juventus, is not. Um, not and, and the Portuguese national team is not either. Nike's being a little bit more uh, uh, critical or, or reflexive or, or um, thoughtful about how it's dealing with this situation. But... Um, it's a pretty screwed up story, right? Like Der Spiegel, the German publication, that's where this article that Brian and I are looking at comes from. Uh, the title of it is How Ronaldo's Legal Team Dealt with Disaster. Uh, you know, obviously throwing the victim into uh, a questionable light to make her testimony look problematic. But I mean, what's crazy to me, dude, is you go through and you read this Der Spiegel article, which has like testimony from Ronaldo, and he totally raped her, right? Like he admits it. That's what's fucking crazy to me. Are you? Have you read this whole thing? Like, yeah, this is the one that, that you sent me that we were going to cover a week and a half ago or whatever. Yeah, right? like, did well. I mean, I, we should be clear. Jesus. I admit he he's he's on the record as denying it. He is. 
Yes, he has I, the knife. I th- what that what that article says, and I didn't read it today, so my recollection could be off. And, and tell me if I'm if I'm misremembering. What it says is he has a sexual encounter with this woman, and right away gets in contact with contact with his lawyers, and uh, and basically she signs a, a non disclosure mm-hmm. agreement. Right, mm-hmm. they have a settlement. I don't think that article says that the settlement is don't tell anyone. You you can't. You can't legally enter into an NDA if it covers up a crime, right. I don't think. I assume what the NDA probably says is, I mean, he was married or engaged at that point, I think. Um, I think what that NDA says is, you can't go public and tell anyone that we had sex. Right. Not that it was non-consensual. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. By the way, nothing that I'm saying right now should be construed as defending, defending Ronaldo. In fact, what I was prepared to say today in this podcast is this what we're hearing about Ronaldo that he um you know had had a, a a sexual encounter with this woman and that ended up paying her money to keep her quiet seems to match up with a lot of the me too stories that we've been hearing from rich and powerful people right mm-hmm. does that make sense does that make sense that that because you're powerful that you feel like you can you know um do whatever you want uh, uh up to and including um, being something of a philanderer or, or, or a womanizer, and that your position means that you can that you can keep it quiet, that you can you can have this PR version of yourself as this world class athlete, as this good role model to kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, on the side, you can be doing things and keeping it and keeping it sort of on the down low, using legal remedies like non disclosure agreements, or just using you know the, the the pressure of your of your of your position. Now, I'm not saying that that always includes rape or sexual assault, but um, it, it seems like in a bunch of cases it has, right? That's sort of what the Me Too movement is about: is all of this stuff kind of going on, just sort of in the shadows, because to come out against rich and powerful people um, is difficult, right? Um, I, I think I've made this argument on the podcast before. I think we're in a situation where um, all deference should be given to accusers, and particularly that should be the case for. His soccer club, Juventus. It should be the case for Nike. It should be the case for EA. These people should, given given the situation, their presumption, I think, should be to give credibility to the allegations of 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 victims, of survivors, right? And that that should take the form of putting putting contracts on hold or can, canceling, you know, your lifetime deal with Nike on Nike's end. Um, it should it should involve Juventus saying, "Hey, look! Until we get this sorted out, we need to we need to um, not have you be the face of the team. We need to not have you playing." If you Google Ronaldo right now, Cristiano Ronaldo, what you get is lots of discussion about him going back to play at Manchester United yesterday in the Champions League. Yeah. Right? There's there's definitely stuff about this allegation, but it's not all that you're seeing. And so um, I think the one of the real question marks of the the Me Too movement is: uh, Are there people who are kind of beyond? reproach when it comes to these types of allegations are there people that are so rich and powerful that they can get away with this stuff and there's there's nothing you can do with it um and i'll, I'll be honest with you i think i i i think ronaldo is a really interesting test case because he's one of the most famous athletes that's currently playing i think that's fair you know a top two or three or four athlete in, in the world he might be the, the number one most recognizable professional athlete you know, to kind of connect this back to our last conversation, toward the, the last story, I'm really in intrigued, but also disgusted or worried about the fact that we can throw out 
one example of a rape allegation that wasn't true and then use that to cast doubt on all other allegations or uh, you know cases of sexual assault, rape that then come after. And I'm thinking particularly of say like the Duke lacrosse or Virginia University, University of Virginia rape cases, right? In which we go back, we, and I'm not saying you and I, but I think um, those who want to ignore the fact that women are actually in a much, much more dangerous position, uh, it, it, it's a, th- a threatening position, right? or that you know they are a threat. They are a victim of violence in ways at a, at a level that men just do not uh, see right? or experience. But we will throw out these examples of cases where the allegations were false in order to cast doubt on every other allegation that comes after. And I guess to me, I wish that we would take a moment and think about this because how can, how can you rationally and reasonably think that let's say this woman, uh, but really any other woman who's willing to cast herself or throw herself out into the public light and be persecuted and investigated and, and have all of her, her dirtiest secrets dug up, is somebody willing just to do that to bring a Ronaldo down? Like that's that's my question. Like that doesn't make sense to me to say, oh, they're doing that to bring Ronaldo down. Like, what is she getting out of this by bringing the conversation back? Like nothing whatsoever. Well, the, 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 the same is true in the oh, Kavanaugh exactly, situation. Exactly. It's 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 every case, but yet we continue to go to 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 doubt. I think we do continue to to doubt, right? And I and I think just just a simple. Uh, process of contemplation would 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 make us realize that there's there's in 99 percent of these cases there's no reason for a woman to make this shit up at all and that we should automatically uh or or at least um more comfortably you know give uh give credence credibility to what she's saying thoughts on that yeah no listen i mean the data bears this out um the extreme minority of, of rape and sexual assault allegations are proven false um, because of what you just said that there's uh, there's there's nothing to be gained there's nothing to be gained from it and in fact the data goes the opposite direction which is that the, there's more instances of sexual assault not being reported than there are instances by by a, by a shitload than there are instances of of people. Um, falsely reporting reporting sexual assault. Now, listen. None of that means, in the case of Ronaldo, that the allegation is is true or false, right? I, I, I to to quote Napoleon Dynamite, like anyone can ever even know that, right? Th- this is the problem with a lot of these sexual assault cases: is, is that it becomes you know two two people telling a story, and and then ultimately credibility. My, the argument that I'm making is it seems that. The, the presumption goes the wrong, the, the presumption goes the yeah. wrong way, yeah. right? Which is not to say that we should assume that everybody is guilty until they're, until they're proven, proven incident, uh, innocent, because, you know, that's anathema to, to sort of uh, an American or Western understanding of, of, of how justice should operate. But I don't think that presuming innocence means that we presume that all sexual assault allegations are lies, right? I don't think it, I don't think it has to go um, that, that direction either. 
right? I don't want to make this about Kavanaugh and and Dr. Blasey Ford, but it seems to me in that in that situation, if if you're a, a senator who's voting whether or not we should confirm Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, and you hear what you view as a credible allegation by Dr. Blasey Ford, and then a credible defense by Brett Kavanaugh, you find both of those um, character witnesses credible, you find both pieces of testimony credible, then the tiebreaker is, well, I'm going to assume then that we should not put someone on the Supreme Court who may have sexually assaulted someone, right? If there's a credible threat, it doesn't even really make a difference what he says. If there's a tinge of credibility to uh, the allegation, then then we should we should take it seriously. And that's probably not somebody we want on the Supreme Court, right? Which is not to say he's guilty. He hasn't been criminally charged, right? The same for me can be true in the case of of Cristiano Ronaldo, right? The, the, the police are looking into it. There may or may not be criminal charges. There's a whole host of issues with that that we probably don't have time to get into. But in the meantime, if I'm Nike or if I'm EA or I'm Juventus, I think me saying we can't have this person represent us with these allegations going on because we want to... We want to signal our support for um, people who are making sexual assault allegations because we know that they tend to be underreported and we know that they tend to be true. Then you should be distancing yourself from those people, right? But I, I think it goes back to what I said before, which is some people's sort of superstardom and the amount of money that that Ronaldo represents for Juventus and for EA and for Nike and for whoever else uh, he's he's a, um, a spokesperson that they have a difficult decision, right? Because they don't want to lose any money. I was just reading that Nike has some obscene lifetime deal with Cristiano Ronaldo that will over the over the course of his his lifetime or their relationship can be worth up you know upwards of a billion dollars. I mean, it's not an easy business move for them to be like, you know, peace out. We're not we're 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 done with you. But what's weird is they did it with Tiger Woods, right? I know, man. And those allegations were you know maybe unsettling that he was he was having you know a bunch of. Uh, uh, relationships outside of his marriage, but th- there was never a claim that they weren't consensual. Yeah, I think I mean, it just goes to show that we try to place one uh, interpretive tool, uh, the same the same tool uh, on all of these stories. We try to understand them from the exact you know box, right? The exact frame, and, and it, these kinds of stories are way more complex. Like, and so. I think we can make the argument that the attack on the Me Too movement has at least partially been fueled by, you know, uh, men uh, who are feared, or, or sorry, who have a fear that them being men or them being ignorant or uh, immature men or boys is going to come back to haunt them. And so there seems to be this collapse of differences between, you know, the flirtatious. Uh, uh, yet immature conversation with women when one is in high school and something like what Ronaldo has done, right? We do, we lack, I guess what I'm trying to say is we lack the language to have a complex and thorough conversation about the systemic connection between these two things, but also the differences between them. Because we just don't, we instead we want to do the Zach Smith thing, right? We throw the bomb, make the sense, and move on as fast as possible. Like, like to me, like that's that's the problem with the contemporary communication landscape, the, the contemporary media landscape, is that we're allowed 
to not have these conversations in depth in ways that we should. And they're because we can go and we can find people or perspectives that we would agree with and go back to our safe spaces. And that's just not a good thing in terms of like the progress of a, of a deliberative democracy. I mean, you know this way better than me, right? I mean, you're a debate coach. You, this is, this is, I understand, right? You and I have had plenty of conversations about the limitations of debate, but as an act, right? As, as a learning tool, you force your students into those moments in which they have to wrestle with stuff they don't agree with. That is, that yeah, is I mean, the public is what I'm saying. That's what, that's what debate is, is, you know, debate, the side that you get assigned, not the side that you believe in as, you know, theoretically a, a, a mental exercise, yeah. an academic one. All right. Um, before we leave, just wanted to make mention of, I don't know if you read this, but yesterday, uh, University of Utah track and field uh, athlete Lauren McCluskey was found murdered uh, outside her dorm room. Um, by a guy that she had been dating and he had killed her and then killed himself. It's the story is still unfolding, but, uh, you know, really, really terrible. Uh, really just a terrible story. Just, I mean, I, it's just, I don't know. Hopefully we can get yeah. through all this, this negative, this, these negative stories this week. So that next week we can have a conversation about the Red Sox win the world series, yeah. but, it's possible. I, I did want to ask just really quickly, not to transition away from mm-hmm. serious to something with a little bit more levity. You posted on on, on all of our social media stuff that uh, the final Pythagorean win loss X XWL for baseball. Did you want to mention that really quick? I found that really I interesting. Mean, you and I have been having this conversation from basically August first on, which is you know we we now have the the tools to. Uh, reliably say how good a team should be or should not be, and that's what Brian's talking about. When you when you take um, when you do the adjusted win loss record, the top three teams were Houston, Boston, and and the Dodgers. And crazy, and right? To see, you know, I mean, look who made it. And the Brewers were so far down that list that uh, you and I just, I think, even in conversation, we knew that their luck was going to start running out. Right? Like they regressed to the mean. It's just wild to think that this stuff happens because the data, that's the one beautiful thing about baseball. The data set is so big, right? That these, that these measurements are way more reliable than we would even have, I think in a 16 game season or an 82 game season. So. Yeah. It's not so, I mean, the teams that scored the most runs in the season and gave up the fewest runs are the teams that are making championship series and our teams that are making the world series. So maybe there's, there's something to that, that wins don't tell the whole story. Hey, one other thing, and maybe we'll sit on this until the next podcast. Have you seen this stuff coming out about, you know, some Red Sox bench pitcher, his name's Heath Embry, was complaining that the World Series balls feel yeah. different? Like the MLB changed, that's the the kind of conspiracy theories that the MLB puts different balls in for the World right. Series to, to make, the, and their claim is that they're like tighter, they're stitched more tightly, and like maybe that they're, they feel harder. And, and the, the claim is that they pitch the same, but that they're more likely to to jump out of the wow. ballpark. So, you know, the, the 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 foil hat conspiracy theory is Major League Baseball swaps the balls in the World Series to make sure it's not a bunch of one nothing games, but instead it's eight to fours like we saw in game one of the World Series. And I was reading about this and uh, Astros made the same claim last year that they said that the the leather was different in the World Series than the regular season. <laughs> and in both cases, I don't know. I don't know if you find this persuasive or not. The pitchers say 
hey, listen, we've been holding these baseballs since spring training. We've been playing with these balls for for seven yeah. months. There's your cold open if you want to just edit me saying playing with balls. But um, we've been playing with these balls. Like we would know if they felt different. That's kind of persuasive to me, right? I think so. I, I, I would, I would, yeah. If you touch baseballs six, seven days a week, it's your job. If someone swapped one out, you probably would know. Listen to you. So what do you think? Is it, is it, is, are we playing with a new set of balls in the World Series? No. I'm going to say no. No. Different cows. <laughs> that's, that could be. Yeah, that's exactly All right, right. Chumley. Did you know did you know did you know that the your butter changes color over the course of the year because of the cow's diet? That's why sometimes it's more white and sometimes it's more yellow. That's that's good stuff right there. That's it's weird, I right? I dig that. That's nice. Um, wonderful depressing show today. Thanks for but dude, in all seriousness, <laughs> thank you for ending this one on a positive note. Folks, you can follow us on Facebook. <laughs> the butter thing or the, the baseball butter thing, thing, the baseball thing. Find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, tell your friends about us. We're on Anchor. Um, yeah, let's make this thing explode uh, way more than it already has. So, all right, old boy. Check out the Check website. Out the website. Especially better. We are sportsnerds.com. We are sportsnerds.com. All right, later, homie. See ya. Later.